and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? We're here for the new year and we haven't got any beer, but it does rhyme, so it must be good. Uh, it's me, Baz, and I'm with Gaz from the north. Hello, Gaz. Hello, Baz. How's it down the south? Uh, well, uh, wintry. As wintry as it gets here. And um, I'm sort of like shivering in my little house. All the decorations are down and all I've got around me is just piles of bits of old Christmas wrapping and uh, box game lids from all the cool stuff I got for Christmas. How about you? Well, that sounds good. Yeah, I've just got a big bunch of cold hard cash <laughs> I'm waiting to spend. I did... Oh, is it all about the vouchers? Yeah, I, t- I did get some decent like Star Wars bits for Imperial Assault and things like that. That's nice. Thanks, Pete. Mm-hmm. Uh, nice, a, nice, a nice, nice. Uh, a nice uh, like ammo case thing with full of Sunset Sarsaparilla. It's a Fallout four or three or one of those one of the Fallout cases. So it's like a, a genuine ammo mm. tin full of goodies and bottle caps and things. So that was quite cool. Bears as well. Nice, 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 nice. So we got we got a little bit of gaming, and I think last time we got together to talk over this podcast, we were talking about how you never actually get any role playing stuff from your friends and relations at Christmas. Has, has it been another classic year of nothing role-playing? Absolutely. Yeah, n- nothing even vague with that. <laughs> the, only, the only thing I've got is it's sort of, it's sort of arrived. I, I ordered it with bulk. It's the, the Android Netrunner stuff, because we're quite into that game, aren't we? Um, they've released like a yeah. world of Android Netrunner book with uh, full of art and background story and uh, all the fluffy stuff that you want from an adventure. So that's actually arrived in... He's in Brighton currently with one of the guys because we had to ship it uh, as, a, as a group. Lodge was in the UK because international shipping is so bad at the minute. So that's waiting yeah, for me. I'll, I'll I haven't to, got one yet. I'll have to get the uh, get a system out of some sort. And it's, it was quite interesting. There was um, a podcast. It's called The Winning Agenda, which is also on Netflix. But they did ask Damon Stone, who's the new developer, if there's going to be an Android Network role-playing game. But he's very cagey about that. So mm. it's nothing to do with him. But it'd be interesting if there was. Well, KG's not a no, is it? Which you would think they would do if they were, if it were a no. I'd call it a yes. <laughs> not a firm yes, but... <laughs> exactly. That's, that's exactly how I read it as well. <laughs> that's always been my attitude to dating anyway. <laughs> that's a different podcast. Right, so bringing it back on topic. So uh, the topic for this week, we were talking about this week. We've, um, we didn't get any role-playing stuff at Christmas. We never blooming do. But because we are role-players of old... There's not much we can't turn to the light side of our hobby. Um, and I've I got plenty of geeky stuff, you know, and you've got your Fallout crates and all kinds of stuff like that. And whether it be movies we've seen over the festive period or some of the board games or mini games or card games that we've had over over recent times, uh, I can't help but role play with stuff. Um, so I thought we would talk about that this week, um, a, a subject that we've discussed before uh, amongst ourselves, but let's chuck it out there onto the internet as well, see what people think about it too. So um, so what games have we got then, Gaz? And what, importantly, I guess, what can we learn uh, with our role-playing heads on from some of the other stuff that's out there that we tend to do when we're not role-playing? So um, you got any contenders for, for sort of like great resources that we could lean on? If we if we didn't have the the really cool kind of friends and family who actually knew where to get our stuff from, <laughs> well, I've been thinking about this a little bit, uh, and one of the things I think that's quite interesting, which is maybe about behaviours of players, but sometimes in a one-off scenario or even in a, a campaign, you have um, a traitor in the group or somebody who's kind of got a different agenda, but they seem to be, or the experience I've had is the players really shady rather than the character being shady and all the rest of it, and I think a, a good example of how you can perhaps do it differently in play is something like Shadows Over Camelot or the Battlestar Galactica board game which I've played a bit of and there's sometimes a traitor in that group but they have to play it straight and I think that would be really interesting as a technique for someone to try out if they wanted to play that shady sort of character in a role playing game how about you try and play it straight at first do you know what I mean and you do things that Mm. are a little bit dodgy that get people's interest up and eventually there's the reveal and something comes out of it but I like that mm. sort of thing rather than sometimes you seem to get people who want to pass notes and have secret conferences with the GM. So you know they're doing something dodgy, but won't say as a player, so no one's getting fun about it as a group. So I think uh, as an opener, I think that's a good idea of some sort of technique you can do is if you want to include that in your game, have a bit where someone can be being dodgy, but they've got to act like they're being good. How can, you know, mm. if, if there's a player outside of the game but everybody's going to maintain their in-game knowledge, it all seems a bit weird. So give some hints away if you want to as character, so people know that something's going on, and have a reveal at some point. I think that'd be interesting in a one-shot game, that you actually set would, it up. Would you, not have, 
Would you would you not have it as open then? Because in a board game, it's one of the central conceits of it is that you know one of the players is the traitor, and the, the idea of that board game is to find out who it is, isn't it? So, would you would you not have it as an open secret that there was going to be one at some point? You could do, you could do, but I think those those games have uh, they depend. They usually have um, a potential traitor or more than one, perhaps, of a bunch of cards mm-hmm. that are all goodies, and you shuffle them all up and hand them out. And depending on the particular game, there might not be a traitor. You know, the, the traitor card might just not have been dealt out that time, or you might have two rather than right. one or whatever. So, but it's up to you, I think. Um, and it's it's just a good way of the mechanics there, but it's not really spoiling anyone's fun if you know what I mean. I think, I think that's what I'm trying to get at. Is that I think you're right. You need to know that there's a potentially a traitor in the game or something like that, or that this thing might happen in the future. Hmm. Um, but it's more about a mechanic enforcing a way of acting, and then at, at a certain point, you you know you flip that card and you act in that way, and it, it comes out. And I, th- I think that's called. If we go back to like Hot War and how I like to play that game, that can be yeah. played open or closed, so everybody can know everybody else's agendas up front, and you know you just go that way, or you can kind of slowly reveal over time. And I think I prefer that method, and I think those sort of games give you a good idea of how it might work. That you act as if you're all on the same team to start with, but then do things in character that tip the other characters off. Even though the players know that there's mm. some kind of competition going on or whatever. Uh, it's trying to moderate the characters and the story so that it feels that way as well. Rather than just being, you know, players against players, you still want the players to be all aiming for one story, I think, or, or the same idea about how the game's going to play out. But you want the characters to have the reveals. Does that make sense? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it totally does. It, and it's, a, it's, I think it's quite a good thing that you can, uh, you can drop uh, a new way of playing the game into a point during the session, can't you? So you could have like, you know, your first two hours, everybody's playing it straight, and then maybe even the traitor doesn't know they're the traitor until that point, and everybody turns their cards, and and that, that might be the first point that they find out it's really them due to some kind of amnesia thing or born identity style. All of those sort of espionage tropes are really cool. And that sort of thing happens in loads of board games and loads of card games. And and you would think that in a role-playing game, that would be like a natural home for it, really. Um, the, the downside is I think it's tough to pull off as a player. Um, I I often sit there as a GM watching six players role-play. Um, and, and I kind of, on occasion, I kind of struggle to remember what pre-gens I gave them because they ain't acting like the way that the pre-gen would suggest. <laughs> so, <laughs> so people can be too subtle. Um, I, I think there's always too much subtlety in games anyway. And, and that's why, and if you try and take it too far, if you're not, if you're not like, very confident with that kind of technique of that slow reveal or that, uh, or dripping the poison into the game, it ends up being paranoia, which is too far the other way because then everyone's the traitor, aren't they? Um, and, yeah, and it gets a bit comedic quite quickly. So I, I, I'd love to see it work, mate. I think if it did, it would be a really, really memorable session and definitely a one-shot that you'd be able to recall for a long time. So, uh, but yeah, that, that's that's definitely one. I've not played Shadows Over Camelot or Battlestar Galactica, actually, but people always talk about them being uh, very good um, examples of that kind of thing. Uh, I think there's another... Sorry, I'll just throw another one in. Um, I was going to mention the XCOM board game as well, because that's... Um, that comes with an app, which, or, yeah, you mm. have to download the app because it, it gives you information. And it's a, co- a collaborative game, or a cooperative, sorry, um, which I generally don't like because you tend to get the quarterbacking thing where one guy knows what all the best moves are and tells everybody else what to do. So really, it's one person playing mm. and five other people just you know moving pieces for him. Um, but what the XCOM game does is assign roles to people, and the app just shouts out to you at various points, like, Commander, you've got 30 seconds to assign this money. Scientist, you've got 45 seconds to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, And what I like about that is that um, the instructions are kind of like they come out in a random order and you don't know how many is going to be and things like that. You have this setup and then uh, afterwards you kind of resolve it all. But it gives you a bit of that niche protection as well. And I quite like the idea in a role-playing game that when it comes to the thief's turn or whatever, or there's some locks to pick or whatever else, um, you you, you pick a particular character or role and say... Mm. It doesn't have to be quite as stringent as that. I mean, a board game obviously has to be nailed down, but I like the idea that you know that every person on the table is going to have at least one go. And you give mm. them, you know, you say, this is your spotlight moment. Perhaps you don't do it as yep. rigidly as that board game would, but I think that's a good indicator of a way of making sure that everybody gets their turn. And I also like the idea there's a bit of a time limit to it. Do you know what I mean? So you kind of say, like, well, you, you've mm-hmm. got to do this thing. Mm-hmm. And then after that point, 
whatever you said goes. And if you haven't said anything, then we move on and leave you lost that opportunity. So that could be a game for something like Blades in the Dark or any kind of heist movie or, you know, that, that kind of action adventure or something's happening at something on the clock. I think it's really good to try and, perhaps artificially, but put some kind of like, you're the guy on the scene now, what are you going to do? And put a time limit on it. Because I think one of the problems mm. of all with, with people is certainly they could be, you know, you try and pick a lock to a door in a dungeon or something, you fail. Uh, what do you all do? Well, can I roll again? And you just keep rolling lockpick till you get in or something. Yeah. You know, you need... It'd be good to have uh, situations set up so that you've just got a limited amount of time and that option's out and what you're going to do next. And then you might turn to the, the Marine yep. or the fighter or whatever, he's got to keep the door in rather than it being, you know, so it's a noisy thing rather than a quiet thing or whatever. But I like the idea of uh, maybe in scenario writing if you want to do it that way or in the adventure, but key points where you can you can definitely give people their opportunity, even if they're a bit quiet or whatever else, and say, okay, then fighter or pilot or whatever it is, here's your thing. We need to know what you're going to do about it because there's a stressful situation. What's going on? Mm. Yeah, th- that kind of stuff uh, is is normally left as kind of informal advice or sometimes formal advice, I guess, isn't it? Because my favourite games have classes, uh, and my really favourite ones have roles as well, where you you pick from a list and you're dead good at something, and you are potentially absolutely rubbish at almost everything else. Um, but you've got stuff you're dead good at, you've got stuff you're no good at, and, and everything else you can be somewhere in the middle, perhaps. Um, and Pandemic is the game that I know that gives you roles, and there is stuff that you can do which will win or lose the game. And there are combinations of stuff that the roles can do that will certainly make the game easier or harder. Um, and I really like that you can just pull you know, the Medic card, and you know exactly what your job is going to be in the game. And if you don't, if you don't do that bit of it, you, you really can't win because that, that particular game is set up so that the roles are the cheat codes, really. They, they break the normal rules of the game. And if you don't do that, you will automatically fail. Um, taking that forward into role-playing games, I mean, that, that needs some some quite tough design. Uh, and there are plenty of games that do it. Um, arguably anything with, 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 with proper old-school classes is trying to do that more than the old, um, you know, build something out of every type of skill. Um, and I quite like... I quite like the simplicity of some of the, the games that I've been playing recently around boards where your character sheet can be just a role. It just says what you do and maybe you've got one ability on it, but it's enough to make you feel really important at the time that you do it. And if you don't get it right, yeah, it suffers a little bit from quarterbacking sometimes, but you know, arguably the, the, the role-playing scenarios that we play are, are set up for that kind of mentality too. I suppose people can be idiots in any medium, can't they? Oh, yeah. But I, I quite, you know, I quite like, I quite like, you know, playing my thief card when I'm a thief. In fact, if I play a thief and I don't get to do something thiefly, that's a little bit annoying. So I think role-playing games could definitely take some of that stuff forward. And I think where role-playing games could be more sophisticated with that is that you could change the roles as you go along. So what I mean is, over the course of a scenario. You might have, you know, let's, let's keep it really simple. You might have something where you're in a firefight and your roles in a fire team might be quite different to the roles that you have when you're all back in the office and you've got like some office politics stuff going on. So depending on, you know, the nature of the dramatic scenes that you've got in your adventures, you could have different roles and different things that kick in and you could have these on cards and trade them back to the GM and pull new ones. You know, so the, you know, the guy who's uh, who's always quiet in the office meetings could be like chucking hand grenades when it comes to the, the fight against the great Cthulhu later on. And that might be quite nice. You see that sort of character arc in, in films quite a lot, don't you, where people change their their uh, spotlight time. So, yeah, I like that, mate. I would take that forward, definitely. Yeah, that sounds cool. Hmm. Okay, so um, some of the stuff that, that hit my uh, table over the Christmas period, I've got, I got loads of what you, I guess what you would call geeky family games. So there's loads of them now. It's brilliant, you know. It's, oh, thank goodness that we're not just stuck with Monopoly on Boxing Day like we used to be when I was a kid, which is a dreadful game. Oh, I don't care how you tart it up. It's, it's awful. Anyway, so some of the cool stuff that I've got, I got uh, Colt Express. That's good. You know yeah, that game. good game. Yeah, great game. Um, uh, for those who don't know, Quick Pracy is uh, you play. I say you play. It's not a role-playing game, except it is. Uh, you play bandits who are in the Wild West robbing a train, and there's a marshal on the train and loads of loot. Uh, and the train is a, is a physical 3D prop 
that sits on the table and the amount of carriages in it is equal to the number of players you've got. So the more people, the merrier. And your little meeples, your cowboy meeples, run up and down that train and getting shot by each other. It's in no way cooperative because you want to be the biggest, best bandit that there is on the train. And the marshal is like the wild card and he moves about disrupting everyone's plans. So I got that. And at the same time, I also got a game called Camel Up, which might be Camel Cup. We had some debate about whether it's yeah. Camel Cup or Camel it's been Up. Cleared up. <laughs> I was even asking people in Germany from that and they couldn't tell me what it was. Yeah, according to Amazon, it's Camel Up. But somebody pointed out to me that the sea could... Anyway, this doesn't matter. <laughs> what really matters is that it's a, it's a game of camel racing and you run around a pyramid, which again is a 3D model that you get to build as the owner of your new game. And you race camels around a pyramid. It sounds dreadful. It's not. It's really exciting. It's a little bit about betting and it's a little bit about probabilities. And it's got a really cool dice mechanic. Now, I guess the thing that I would take from both of those games is... Uh, I played them with guys who were in no way traditional role players. Not a chance. Um, you know, we look like a bit of Star Wars and like a few geeky pursuits, but, you know, it's just your, your, your average individuals who just want to get together and have some fun and have a glass of wine and play a nice game. But what I really liked was having something to focus on, literally, to look at in the middle of the table. And when it's Cult Express, you've got a nice train, and when it's camel up, you've got a pyramid that you have to shake, turn upside down, and a dice falls out of the top of it, which is remarkably more, much more fun than it sounds. And it just strikes me that having something for everybody to focus on means that they do focus on it. Um, I've noticed it in role-playing games if you use minis, and you know that's that's a huge topic of itself as to whether minis bring something to a game or detract from the game. But I genuinely think that having something in the centre of the table or just something that's tactile that you can hold or move about or something for everyone to look at means that they are less likely to disappear off into their iPhones. Um, and, and in all of the games that I played over, over Christmas, it was definitely a question of like, it's your go and it would go around the table. And there could be reasonable stretches of time before it came back to you. But having something physical in the middle of the table did mean that you kept your attention on what was going on. And I think... Clearly, board games and mini games and card games have that visual impact where there is something on the table that sometimes in our role playing games and even the best of them, when you've got nothing there at all, then the game is quite fragile. And it, and it can kind of that shared sense of suspension of disbelief that you've got around the table could collapse. And sometimes it's just by somebody making an off color joke or somebody's phone rings or somebody knocks over a can of Coke or whatever it is. And you haven't got anything to pull everybody back into the centre of the game for. So I mean, those games are great on their own merits anyway. But I'll probably talk about them a little bit more when it comes to like, you know, the narrative that you put into the game. But just the 3D cardboard element of it, of having something to pick up and poke around. It's brilliant. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the physical uh, artifacts. Uh, more, more the better, really. Um, a good thing that... Um... Darren Sims has done that. He's run like Firefly type games for years now, probably, uh, and he's just kept making more and more props for it. Props for it, sorry. And one of the things I really liked, it was quite a simple touch, but he kind of done his own money and printed that out, so he had like physical banknotes to hand out. So when we went and did a deal, like he, he would he'd give us the money that we'd made from doing that thing, and when we had to refuel our ship, we had to hand pieces of paper back. And and all like most mm. people don't like the bean counting and all that kind of aspect of it, but instead of crossing off credits on the sheet, when you had to hand physical 5,000 credit notes back, it was a bit like, well, do we need to fill her up to the max to do this? <laughs> Can we get there on half a tank? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, it added an extra element to the game where that, that money felt almost real to us, if you know what I mean. You had a lot more of attachment to it. You're more interested in doing jobs for the cash because you saw some cash out of it and you got to hold it in your hands and look at it yeah. and pile it up. So I think anything with that kind of physical element definitely gives you a bit of an extra. You know, even like... Mm. Um, what, what did I play? Supernatural played at um, Furnace. And we got the manila folder with a, our character sheet in it and like a little photo attached and all that kind of stuff. It's only a little touch. The character sheets would have worked equally well if you'd just got a typed out sheet in Word or something like that. But having an actual artifact that you can flick through and feels in theme with the game definitely adds to it and helps people you know, get mm. in that kind of zone in the mindset of what, what you're playing. Definitely agree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and those games are great at that. And I think some of the some of the newer role-playing games, and even some of the older ones, have been really impressive with their production values. 
So, you know, people like, like the guys we know, like Darren and, and Paul Lawrence and, and the guys who can just do wonders with a bit of software and a decent printer. And that's great. Um, but for those of us who haven't got that kind of creativity or even time, there are, there are a few games out there that I've played in the past that really do give you some stuff to play with. Uh, the new Star Wars games from FFG. Um, the beginner's boxes are full of cool kit. Um, a little while ago now, and it kind of got a bit rubbished at the time, but I don't think it was because of production qualities, was Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, the third edition. The one with the massive box, which came with absolutely everything. There was little boxes for your characters, little sheets for your party, all kinds of little stand-up stuff. And it wasn't minis on a battle mat at all. It was just really good quality componentry. Uh, from coins up to health points, and it was all done on that kind of, you know, really good quality cardstock that you'd get from a decent board game. Um, and and there's, there's a few examples of that, you know, just games where you get some good bling, and I like that sort of thing. Um, and I think that it's really pricey, but I kind of miss the box sets that I was introduced yeah. back in the 80s. Um, I think I would drop serious money on a Savage Worlds box set that contain the rules, proper cards, all the dice, some bennies, some really good little playing pieces, you know, just stuff like the cardboard stuff from uh, from Cole Express or Camel Up. There's some Savage Worlds games in there, definitely. But that kind of, you know, materiel, I, I'd, I'd pay proper money for that in a big box, definitely. Yeah, and I think you can sort of get some of that, or it's starting to appear again. I mean, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because it tends to be Kickstarters. But you can get things mm. like, you know, the, uh, I don't know, Antarctic uh, exploration patch and all that kind of stuff, or all the extra bits that can come with Horror on the Irish Express and that kind of thing. The, the problem is that, of course, then all these extra add-ons and bits and pieces and bells and whistles mean the thing doesn't come out for several more months because they've got to organise it all. But yeah. I think at least a good thing from the Kickstarter point of view is that it's starting to get to the point now where you can get extra bits and pieces or satchels with a Cthulhu's face stamped on or whatever it might be, but... It's good at least that we're, to an extent we're going back to that old box model, even though if you don't actually get a box necessarily. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, uh, so uh, how about over in a card game or mini game land, mate? Is there anything that you've been, well, I know you've been playing loads of stuff recently, but is there anything that you think we can bring from there into RPGs or vice versa, I should say, as well? Anything from the card games? I mean, I like, for Netrun, I'll talk about that because that's, the thing I play most, obviously, the thing I like about that is the kind of, um, not the kind of the actual theme to it. You know, the, the feel of it. Everything drips the right kind of theme, and it includes things like there's little quotes on the cards that don't necessarily have to make sense or seem isolated. But mm-hmm. as, as the story goes on, and more sets get released, you get more bits of it, and it can just be little bits like that, like a little catchphrase or something you say, like the quest completed thing or whatever. And I think having little bits like that to add to your character when you're role-playing can really add a lot. Like the the sort of disadvantage of a habit of smoking or something like that or drinking is the one that gets hit quite a lot, you know. And if a character's got that, they can tend to like oh, light up a cigarette and they mention it quite a lot and you get something out of it. But there's there's more can be done in that area, I think. Uh, if you mm. think of character ticks or quirks or catchphrases, try and think of something that your character does or something they're really interested in that's not necessarily uh game related like a, a thief just just doesn't just have to be greedy they could just really like emeralds or you know whatever it might be or maybe they collect little china dolls or something or you know i think we, there's definitely scope for thinking about what your character could do and it doesn't have to affect the gameplay necessarily or your, your skills or that kind of stuff but it can be around flavor and think of a little quirk or extra bit that makes your you know gets your makes your character interesting or recognizable or when you start mm. mentioning that thing, then other players go like, oh, that's classic Gandalf or whatever your character's called. You know, that sort of thing. I think that's definitely something that could mm. be done because if you can do it for little bits of card and it's just the odd bit of flavor text here and there, a quote on a piece of ice somewhere, and you've all got an idea about how Wizard is as a character compared to Kate or G-Noise or anyone else, then you can definitely do it in a role-playing game where you've got more scope. Yeah, yeah. And there's a couple of interesting bits just to build on there, mate. The first thing that I find with, with those kind of card games, and I'm not a massive card game player, but the ones I like, I really like, is I just find them really good to learn. I find that system of having a deck of cards makes me learn it a lot better than reading a 300 page book. 
yeah. um, which I've had to master plenty of. I kind of wish when I was doing my degree back at university that I put it all on playing cards because at the same time when I was playing Magic and Over the Edge and all of those card games, I had those down pat. I could have told you every number on them and every combination, all the rest of it, but taking stuff out of books was more tricky. So I think as a way of getting loads of information across to people, having a little hand of cards or a deck of cards or having your game built out, built out of that kind of system works really well. And interestingly, yeah. I think a, a small deck of cards is, is a really good random table that all the guys in the OSR obsess about, their randomized tables. <laughs> well, if you've got 12 entries on the table, you've got 12 cards in a deck, it's basically the same thing, except you can shuffle it, add to it, take things out. Yeah. So there's loads of role-playing games that have made entries into cards, but I, I think role-players are quite conservative, and, and, and I think you know they, they kind of, generally speaking, don't like seeing cards coming into their role-playing games. I, I get that impression sometimes. It, certainly that's what happened with Gamma World from Wizards fairly recently. And games like Everway never really took off. Uh, and I know people who don't like Savage Worlds because it's got a deck of cards in it, just because they're quite, you know, quite parochial, I suppose, about polyhedral dice. A bit weird, but there you go. It takes all sorts, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I'm wondering whether Everway would actually um, um, do better now, if you know what I mean. I mean, it's kind of tarnished, maybe. tarnished now with an old brush from uh, so many years ago I can't see anybody seeing it as new but if, if you look at a lot of the independent games that produced and all the rest of it that idea of getting a card and interpreting what the picture says and that's that sort of thing I think that would probably would go down a storm now it might have just been the other way it was about 20 years too early or something you might be right and here's a segue for you because the other point I was going to make and um, was about the game over the edge one of the this is the role-playing game over the edge one of the things it did was you had your attributes. I can't quite remember what name it gave it. It was probably attributes or traits. Traits, I think it was. And it might be something like uh, strong and dexterous, the kind of thing you would see in every game. But the game encouraged you to write a phrase to go with it. So instead of just being brawny, you might have like you know built like an outside lavvy. And that would be the interface between you and the rest of the game. You would say that rather than I've got brawny at three dice, you would say, as you know, I'm built like an outside lavvy. And um, that was ages and ages ago. And you, you see it in stuff like fake games now with aspects. And, and that's what you were talking about with the little bits of flavor text on the cards. They're clearly way more evocative. I think they're the last thing you go to in card games. You start by learning the mechanics and the titles. And then you start to recognize the artwork on the card. And you start looking into that, which brings us back to Everway. Designer of Everway is Jonathan Tweet. He also designed Over the Edge. So that's where my segue went. Um, and... And maybe the last thing you do is you start to look at the little bit in italics, if they can fit it into the card. But they're often the best bits. And then when you go deep into that rabbit hole of a card game, that's when you find out that there's a world. And the beauty of it is you didn't have to read the encyclopedia, the role-playing games seem to insist that you do, in order to find out about the world. You totally find out about it through play, and you don't need to find out about the world to play the game. But if you're going to show any enjoyment in it at all, it's all there for you in tiny little pick sections. And they start to refer to each other. You know Netrunner better than I do, but there's loads of self-referential stuff going on between the cards, isn't there? Yeah. And without being told a story, you get told a story. And I, I would love to learn a role-playing game in the way that I learn a card game and the world that's behind it. I think it'd be great. Yeah, I think it's something we've talked about before in terms of like the Iron Kingdoms, the the most recent iteration of that. Uh, sorry, Priority at mm. first, but you made a good world really boring. Um, whereas <laughs> something like the the actual war game, War Machine, that was just really interesting right from the off. You got little cards with your jacks or your little units or individuals and stuff like that. And you didn't know a massive amount about the world necessarily unless you read it. But let's face it, for it was a, it was a war game, and we were in the royal game bit first and started hitting each other with big mm. little jacks. That's the first thing we did. The background came later. But just from the, yep. the way things were described, having your little card, you could tick boxes off when you'd been hitting locations, all that kind of stuff. That just all gave you all the flavor you needed. And I think mm. it's more that kind of play now stuff that we want, isn't it? It's like an immediate gratification. It'd be great when you pick up a new gun or find your plus four Holy Avenger or plus five Holy Avenger, whatever it is. If you've got a little card with the stats written on, you don't need to write anything on your sheet. You just can put your stuff in front of you or use your flask of oil after you've, you know, by throwing your card back when you've gone. It's something that I did a little bit for um, a Hell on Earth game where I had people would scavenge for stuff like that. So I just had a big deck of cards of myself 
And uh, anytime any, someone made a successful scavenge roll, they just pick some random cards from the deck to see what loot they found. Or, or crap, because there's a lot of that in there as well. But uh, again, I think we're coming back to that kind of like tactile, touchy feely thing, isn't it? When you can sort of interact with people and they can hold something in their hands, it just helps you out a little bit more, keep engaged with the game itself rather than. At least then, if you're looking through cards or you're looking at what other people have got, it's a little bit better than everybody just put going head down into a character sheet, which is something that can happen. I think quite often we've yeah. mentioned before, people just go head down and like, what numbers are written on my sheet? What can I do? If they've got some mm-hmm. stuff they can move around, then that works well. So it's and that's the sort of technique I've used, especially for investigation games, but it works with lots of games with NPCs in. It's just have a little headshot for each of your NPCs or an item to represent them or a miniature or whatever. And if you can lay them out, it stops people forgetting who they are. And if they want to like work out relationships between them, they can move the little pictures around and go, oh, hang on, he knows this guy and he's working for that guy and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I think having that board gaming element to it and let the players have some control of where they put things keeps them engaged. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, like all of that stuff. I mean, funnily enough, one of the card games I've played loads over the last couple of years is the uh, Pathfinder Adventure card game. Which is ostensibly it's Pathfinder, but with cards, like it says on the box. Um, but but strangely, from a rules perspective, it's actually much more like Savage Worlds. There's not a D20 in it, which is a bit odd. Um, but it's it's a really good way of playing through the Pathfinder adventure parts without having to go through well the the chore, frankly, of playing them out in the tabletop <laughs> way, which would which would take years. It would. I mean. Even Pathfinder players tell me that it takes years and it gets really complicated after a couple of levels. But Pathfinder cards is great. So it's a great way of, of going through uh, a collaborative system, but you don't need a, a GM. Everyone's got like a party and a party member. And you are basically playing D&D, the card game. But the absolute killer, because these cards replicate Pathfinder art, which is good. It's professional stuff. The killer is there's not none of them have got a line of flavour text on apart from the occasional villain. Nothing. And it's such a waste because there's big swathes of white space available on those cards. And when you come from even Magic the Gathering is fantastic at pulling like 12 words together, which really make it something that you remember forever. Pathfinder didn't do it. And that's just shocking to me. Yeah. Because some of the guys who played the Pathfinder seasons with me have no knowledge of Pathfinder outside of those card games. And I do have some knowledge from having read some of the adventures and played in a couple of them. So for me, it's just like a big stack of Easter eggs. And I go, oh, yeah, that's that goblin. And, oh, yeah, I remember her, that NPC. Yeah, she secretly such and such. But if I didn't know it from the books, the cards wouldn't have told me that. And it's a huge missed opportunity. I don't know if the later sets have done that. But it would have been great for us to kind of piece together the world from from that and, and i think that's where other games can sometimes go wrong is when they're too mechanical and they could put some gloss on it and, and euro games can be a bit like this can't they where it's just a mathematical construct which they've put a skin over the top of yeah and the role player in me always wants to see a bit more narrative and a bit more of a let's do this because it would be cool rather than effective um i guess that's what makes me a role player and not a, a chess grandmaster yeah, yeah, that's one of the reasons, Baz. Yeah, one of the one, the only reason, really. I can't think of anything else. Um, well, I mentioned, it's just not I mentioned that black and white. Fallout earlier on. I've been playing quite a, quite a bit of Fallout Four, having days off from work and being able to sit in my pants and do nothing because I've not got any kids or responsibilities, which is great. Um, but uh, that's kind of a, I don't know. It seems like it's almost there's some really good bits to it that are role playy and other bits that just blatantly aren't. And they're kind of, I love it and hate it at the same time in many ways. And one of the things about it is um, dialogues. And one of the things I did like, which I think is really for console, is there's four options every time you speak to someone. And they don't necessarily give you the full, I think older iterations used to have like a full sentence and you pick one. Whereas now it just goes like, be sarcastic, uh, say yes, do something else, do something else. And they're quite, quite pithy and you can just skip to the end and press the sort of response you want to give. And then your character gives a bit more, the voice actor gives a bit more padding to it and all that kind of stuff. So that's a, a good kind of shorthand in a way if you've got players who are a little bit uncomfortable about doing the, the live-action squeaky voices thing, as, as your wife might call them. Uh, or, you know, doesn't really want to act things out but wants to still have some input. It might be nice to mm. give, you know, you can quite easily give a snappy sort of what sort of response do you want to give and we'll work it out from there. Kind mm-hmm. of. I think another sort of Good and bad thing is that 
as well. It doesn't really seem to matter in most of the interactions what response you give. You'll get a different response back from them, but then the story just carries on anyway. And it's a bit mm. too transparent for me. Being a role player, I can see through it all. I can see that it doesn't matter which one I press. You always hit sarcastic because they're mm-hmm. the funniest. But that, that doesn't have any effect on the story, and that's quite disappointing. And it's something, obviously, with a human being behind that wheel of choices that you can do a bit more about. But it's also a good lesson to learn in a way that whatever happens, you're going to carry on down this plot path and let the story carry on. And it's a good lesson to remember as a GM to not let things stall. If your players are just being sarcastic mm-hmm. all the time or whatever... That doesn't mean that now the NPC doesn't help them at all and the story doesn't go anywhere. You know, you're still going to be able to just push through. It might flavour what happens. Because uh, the other sort of thing it used to have, I'm not sure it, it works well on this, I think it was Fallout 3, was like faction points. So as you did certain things, different factions would like you or hate you. So I think mm. how you act affecting the game world is definitely something to take away, certainly for campaigns. And have different groups with slightly conflicting goals or some overlaps and some not, and then key moments where each wants you to do something completely different from what you do. And depending on how you behave mm-hmm. yourself and report yourself, that affects the game world and how people treat you. And if you've been a baddie and walk into town, it'd be like doubles the prices of all the food or whatever. And that kind of stuff. And I think the kind of trying to impact the world by what your, or your there's consequences, your actions, whatever you do impacts the game world. I think that's a good thing to weave into role playing games as well. And that, Fallout's tried different ways of doing it, and some are better than others. But that kind of keep the story going, and then there's consequences to what you've done previously is a good thing to kind of remember and get some reincorporation going on that kind of thing. Yeah, and and in some of the some of the really big published scenarios of which I've got more than a few, they they kind of do a lot of that stuff behind the screen. So if you played uh, the enemy within campaign for Warhammer back in the day, you might have got as far as playing Power Behind the Throne, which is simultaneously the world's greatest adventure ever written and also the most unplayable, which is an unfortunate combination. Uh, but, but one of the things that makes it really difficult to, to GM, I should say, rather than play, is you've got a big old conspiracy web. And there's loads of stuff happening behind the screens about influence. Let's just call it influence. It might be agenda or faction points or whatever. And even modern games do this too, where you know if, if, if the players do this kind of action, then this group will like them more and this group will hate them more to make it very, very simplistic. Why that stuff has to be kept behind the screen, I, I guess, is because there's a fear of meta in role-playing games. There's a fear of putting counters out on a track on the table for players and GMs to look at that doesn't necessarily relate to the world directly. So seeing faction points advancing up and down a ladder would probably be a step too far for some role players. And they would think, oh, now I'm playing a board game. Whereas my reaction to it would be, I like the clarity. I like knowing what my mission is. Um, I like pacing and I like knowing exactly what's going on and and if what I've done or what we've done as players has an effect doesn't mean it has to be accurate you know because you could still be quite secretive about elements of it or it could be unnamed tracks or whatever but seeing some sliders move up and down perhaps on a physical representation in the middle of the table or you know if you want to obscure it just have more photographs more of your headshots in, in the sort of games that you play and just moving them into different circles on Venn diagrams Seeing that actually happen, I don't think that would be a bad thing because I think role-playing games can can sometimes sacrifice clarity for the sake of immersion uh, and sometimes it gets a bit opaque and certainly in investigation games where it's anything where you're not trying to kick in the door and kill things to reach your goal but you're trying to influence people or talk people around, you sometimes don't know whether you're not winning or losing but just getting anywhere or not. Um, and how many advice threads do you see on rpg forum saying what do i do when the when when my players just you know they spend too long at a red herring that i've dangled in front of them or what do i do if they're going if they don't see the obvious clues and i think sometimes you know a bit of physical help on the table might be a good thing so i i think i think video games you can always look back behind the interface can't you to see how your points are stacking up and you, you don't have to you could just you know pick the the response that you want to pick and just ignore all that stuff. But for those of you who want to know what's going on, which is usually me, I think that would be good. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I mean, I've definitely seen that happen, certainly with those the, the, the headshots and stuff like that, for example. Uh, when one player is getting too excited about talking to someone, and another player will go like, look, he's not important. We haven't got a picture for him. 
And like, so, yeah. It's a little bit sad that it has to be said out loud, but it is a very visual idea that, like, although one player's got in his head that this guy must know some more stuff, it's like, no, but I haven't got a prop for him, so it can't be that important to the story. Let's not waste too much time. So it definitely helps. Oh, I've, I've had people feel their way through D&D scenarios by sensing whether or not you're using box text. Because <laughs> if you're not, you've gone off the script. <laughs> Which was not hard to do. No, no. <laughs> so back in um, back in video game land, though, one of the things that, that I don't play a lot of video games, but the, but the ones I do, what I like about them is I've never had to open an instruction booklet. They're very, very, very good at walking you through those tutorial steps. And, um, and similarly, in the world of board games, you are not very far away from cracking the cover off of a board game and then actually playing. Uh, and that's still a massive, massive obstacle in pretty much 99% of RPGs, the common ones that are out there. I know there'll be exceptions to this, and I can think of a couple myself already. But generally speaking, someone's got to put in an awful lot of effort, um, usually one person, to then teach everybody else how it works. Yeah. And and even if they've made the effort to learn the game, they're often in, in the state of having to come up with a scenario and host the blooming thing and get people over for, for hours at a time. So all of the unique selling points of role-playing games, don't get me wrong, I like all of that stuff from one perspective. But from another perspective, oh, man, alive. Board game rules and video games rules are... They're not a masterclass. Netrunner is a great example of a bad rulebook, actually. It's not brilliant at teaching you how to play the game. But for its length, it manages to convey everything you need to know. And it's got a bit of micro-fiction in there. And it's colourful. And honestly, with a little bit of, of study for half an hour, two people are playing a game which they had no comprehension of half an hour before. There ain't many role-playing games where you can do that, especially if you're the GM. Um, you can transfer a lot of skills, which you can do with board games and card games too. You know, you've got your, your board game tropes that will run across a few of them, and, and a lot of role-playing stuff will happen too. But it is a bit weird how 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 difficult it is for me with my massive collection of games to look across the shelves and just think of something that I can be playing within 15 minutes. There isn't many of them. In fact, almost none. I could think of Fate Accelerated. If I had the right people in the right mood, I could probably get a game going. Everything else I would need to do some research and or prep and quite a lot of it in some cases. And Maybe you're different, guys. Have you got stuff that's ready to go that you've had to do work on previously that you've saved or is your collection different to mine yeah well i've got got to games you know i can run pendragon or savage worlds or hot war pretty much off the top of my head uh, and there's probably other games that I can do quite easily as well maybe not get 100 percent quite like things like the one ring i'd have to do a little bit more research on because there's like little subsystems mm. to remember the bits and pieces a little bit um well, I think one of the, I think you're right. On, like, there's definitely games where you just have to get the rule book out and try and remember what you're doing, or even get the scenario books out or the you know the background to try and remember what things are and where they sit, stuff like that. I think one of the mm. things that FFG do really well, and they've got this for Nightmare, but particularly for like their Star Wars X-wing miniatures game and stuff like that, which is great. They have little videos, so you can watch yeah. them and learn how to play the game. And I'm pretty sure people could do it for role playing. The only one I've seen uh, was. And it was about an hour and a bit long, and I didn't manage to make it all the way through. I think it was for the Strange or Numenera or one of those. It was Monty Cook thing. So, you know, applause to them for trying it. Unfortunately, it was a bit like examples you find in role-playing games. Now, it tends to be something like, you know, if you want to climb a wall or you want to do this, you want to do that, then roll mm. these dice, which is okay. It's fair enough. But it's a pretty crap example, isn't it? I'm not excited by climbing mm -hmm. a wall. You've not grabbed me in. And the, the video was a little bit like that as well. It's like, oh, you know, this guy is looking at you funny. Oh, I try and like sneak past him or something it was like that's and the whole thing took too long and it, and it, you know mm. and it was an hour long and the actual there was too much space and flab in the actual segment so it was good they tried it i think you could break it down into more of the board or card game type explanation we have five minutes just have one encounter mm. and start off with the goblins just smashed in the face with his steel top hat boot what do you do and you could get the mechanics out and all the rest of it and just have someone escape from a goblin prison or something like that you know what i mean Mm. I think for a lot of mm. games, you could definitely get the players up to speed on what they need to know. James will be different. You'll always have to have that one person who has to unwrap the box and read all the stuff. But uh, if you could show your players a little five-minute video at the start of a convention game or your home game or something, and then they'd know basically what they're doing and got a bit g'd up, 
That'd be quite cool. We should do mm. some and sell them. We should. <laughs> to play with them. We may do. <laughs> if I have time off dozens of my, copies from my chess grandmaster world tour that I'm setting out on next year, I see if I can set to do some YouTube stuff. Um, I, I think I, I've always thought that, mate. I always think yeah, we're a massive, massive subject is like getting new people into gaming or the gaming that we love. Uh, it's absolutely fraught, and I, I still don't think anyone's really grappled it. I've seen a few attempts at it. I've seen a few websites. I've tried a few things myself. It's difficult. It's just difficult, and I think perhaps you know it's maybe a fight not worth fighting. Maybe the nature of the beast is that it's always going to be uh, that kind of mentor-apprentice relationship where you know you you take one person into your gaming group at a time, and if you concede any new GMs, good luck to you. But well, I think we've all got to admit that that anybody picking up a role-playing game off the shelf at Leisure Games or whatever their local store is, that is a terrible way to learn how to role-play a game. Yeah. It's just awful. Um, even though every single book still tries to attempt to teach the complete novice as if they have picked it up off the shelf cold, <laughs> what it is they're holding in their hand. At least, well, a couple of books have given up the ghost on that now, quite rightly, and said, you know what this is, don't you? Good, well, let's not do the whole what is role-playing stuff. Yeah. If you don't know what it is, um, put the book back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're in the wrong store. Um, well, you say but, that, I, I, but yeah. sorry, just to interject, um, there's a guy called Noah who's one of the, the top 16 at um, Worlds this year. Quite a nice guy. Uh, and he put on one of the Stimhack forums for Netrun about, oh, I've sent this game Shadowrun. And I want to play it with my mates. You know, has anybody done role playing before? And I, wow. I, I managed to put quite a big post up with, with my kind of advice. And it is that kind of thing where I said, like, look, I'll run you an online game for a couple of hours if you want. Like, it might not be Shadowrun, but I can give you an idea mm. if you like. Because the Shadowrun new edition books, like a telephone directory. If if kids yeah. these days know what one of them is, just imagine a really big book. <laughs> telephone directory. You probably, you probably just Google <laughs> stuff these days. Don't you? But yeah, it's a picture it's, of a SIM card comes to the head. <laughs> I, I don't know how many pages, but it must be five hundred or something. It's a big fat beast, and my heart just sank that this guy who loved obviously the cyberpunk theme and genre and stuff because he's playing a lot of Netrunner wants to pick up a game. And he's picked that one, and he's going to try and learn it with his mates. So I was just thinking, like, he's not going to get there. What a what a shame no. that someone's so enthusiastic. But within a couple of weeks, he posted back going, "Oh yeah, we've had a you know we've had a first session and really enjoyed it. We've made some characters. We've done this, that, and the other, and you know it seems quite cool." So that was the last game I expected someone to be able to pick off a shelf and do something wow. with. But he's, he's done it. Yeah. So, you know, obviously it does work in some cases, I guess. Well, yeah, well, it, well, it worked for all of us. That's, that's the thing that, that I think sometimes us old hands forget when we're always talking about the ideal intro game and the ideal intro experience is think back to the one you had. Um, I, I, I sat down with a big book. <laughs> that was my first half an hour in the hobby. I got presented with a big book and told to read it. And read it, I did. And I think that at a certain age, you know, being presented with a great big stack of information to take on board is not necessarily a bad thing. And it, and it, and it can absolutely work. And and I don't think I'd have been impressed with something that looked a bit shallower because all of that existed. And that was the Monopolies and the Cludos and everything else. There was something about it being a bit obscure, arcane, and, and potentially an endurance test. That's what made it kind of cooler for me. And, and, and that's still true of stuff like miniatures games where you have to paint your own stuff. You can buy pre-painted minis, and many companies do, and many people do, but the, the die-hard hobbyist is the one who gets the lead and spends the money and takes the time. Um, and there, there's an absolute valid business and a complete hobby in that. That's what makes it a hobby, I suppose. You know, for your friend who got into Shadowrun, he could have picked up Shadowrun Crossfire. It's a game I have. It's based on cards and a few stickers and stuff like that, and it's a co-op board game without a board and you play Shadowrun missions. Do you know what? It isn't bad, but it's not the RPG. And it reminded me of Shadowruns I'd been on when I played Shadowrun 2nd Edition back in the day. It certainly reminded me of them, but I'm glad I'd played those first. A bit like the Pathfinder card game that I was talking about earlier. I'm glad I'd done that first because this game reminded me of those and that's what made it a fuller experience. And, and that's why that's why RPGs exist, don't they? And, uh, and we're a fan of them because they do stuff that the other games don't. They're not the same, but it, but there's definitely transferable skills between the two. And one of the things I'd like to be able to do more often is pull the lid off a new game rather than open the cover of it and work my way down through stuff that's no bigger than a pamphlet. And maybe there's some juicy stuff at the bottom of the box too, but get a game going in relatively short order from cold with four or five people who wouldn't normally want to play a role-playing game with me. 
but if it's got a box with a name on it and I say who wants to play this it's really cool it's only going to take an hour according to what it says on the outside of the box and it's for mm -hmm. two to five players and um, and we're all going to be like you know World War II fighter pilots um, but we're also dogs <laughs> whatever the conceit is that'd be great that'd be really good and I, I and I think there should be more stuff like that that isn't traditionally a board game but it's a kind of a more genuine role play experience yeah I guess I don't know you can put role play into whatever you want as well can't you I think that's that's the thing is sometimes there's a little bit too much effort in trying to write the role playing into a game when actually oh, massively you know that's that's down to us to do. Like if you play Settlers of Catan with Bez, he he, he won't say wood for sheep or whatever. He'll just come over and tell you about the fine mahogany that his ambassadors were talking about. Mm -hmm. and, you know, your scratty mountain goats that are very lean aren't worth half of his uh, mahogany shipment, and it suddenly becomes this role playing game rather than just swapping two cards over. Cause, just because genuinely that's how he likes to play games, and uh, much like you and I, we try and look at the role playing slant on anything. So. Yep. I think that yep. a lot of these games we've been talking about are good for the they have a good core mechanic and a lot of flavour and then the rest of the stuff down to you and that's basically what role playing games are as well. You want some core mechanics, you want some flavour, and then the the magic happens when it's people coming up with crazy crap between themselves, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I found that so many times. It was a really good lesson over the Christmas period to play loads of games that weren't role playing games. And guess what? I need absolutely no encouragement. No encouragement at all. So, you know, I, I can picture my <laughs> Arabian noble when I'm playing Camel Up. And all you get is a little picture. You get like a little cartoony picture of someone. You have to pick them from a series of about eight. And there's one old guy with a white turban. And there's one sort of saucy looking princess in a purple veil and so on. You'll never guess which one I picked. <laughs> and there's about three or four of these. And, and they have no mechanical differentiation between them at all. But you just pick one to be like your piece, like, you know, the coloured pawn that you would take in Cluedo. But I had a backstory within about 20 seconds. Thank goodness nobody asked me what it was. And as you played, I, I just started playing in a certain manner based on my little picture. And I did exactly the same in Colt Express, despite being, you know, and there's, there's a little bit more to it with that. You get given a name like El Tuco. And how can you not want to play a character called El Tuco? who's got a special gun that blasts you back a carriage when he hits you. And I needed absolutely no encouragement. And I certainly didn't need 50 skills that were graduated between 1 to 10 in each of them, uh, and loads of feet trees and talents and stuff like that. And nor did I need aspects and a fate point economy to go down to, like, you know, the middle of the road. And, and, and it, wasn't, it wasn't totally indie either. I just didn't need any role-playing encouragement to role-play. And... If I didn't want to do any of it, as some of the people around the table didn't, they just played the numbers and they played the stuff, it was still a really good game because it just rested on its core ability to play out a session to a resolution. And that was great. And without wanting to dig up a by now very old edition warring thing, some of the charges that were levelled against D&D 4th edition were that it was too board gamey or too video gamey or that you couldn't role play in it or that there was no encouragement to do so. To which my stock answer then was, well, then you're clearly not a very good role player. Because yeah, what 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 help do you need? And and actually, over the last couple of months, I think that's just been reinforced for me. I think I think role players will role play no matter what, and it'd be difficult to stop them. And equally, I think people who don't want to give it the flavour some narrative, I, I don't know what you can do to make people say stuff. Genuinely, I don't know what you can do. So it might be that that's that's a fool's game is to, is to try and and really push that agenda when I think people would just either do it or won't do it. And I think, you know, perhaps the setup around the table and the social network that you've got and the atmosphere is arguably, for me anyway, more of an influence than a 16-page GM's advice cheat sheet to hand out to people. Yeah, definitely. I think you're right. I've had my last main role-playing group that I had disbanded because we tried for ages to fix it. You just can't sometimes. The fundamental no. problem was that two guys wanted to play differently than two other guys did. And that's there's no fix for that. There's no rule set you can pick up. There's no set of mechanics or videos or nice-looking artifacts you can put on the table that are going to fix it. It's just got two different ways of wanting to play a game. So you have to, mm. you have to call it an end to it there, I guess. But yeah, the magic happens with uh, us lot talking to each other. All the rest of it is just stuff to encourage that cool stuff to happen, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've got uh, a couple more just really quick little games I learned a load from over Christmas and both little card games, card games for kids. I've got kids. Um, uh, one was called Loot, which is a, a pirate game. It's oh, I can't pronounce the fella's name. You might have to help me out with this game. You'll know. Reiner Nitzia, <laughs> the famous German designer. Let's, let's <laughs> who say I think yes. did Catan. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Reiner, the German game designer, um, he was the man behind this Loot game. And it's dead simple. Seriously, we were playing it within five minutes, and it's all about being uh, trying to score merchant ships and get as much gold off of them as you can. And you've got pirate ships in your hand, and you've got captains and admirals and stuff like that. And um, it's, it's basically it's reskinned game of kind of sort of rummy style stuff. It's just got points and that kind of thing. But the thing I learned from it is we got an awful lot of sea battles done in 20 minutes <laughs> and <laughs> i would love to play a pirate <laughs> role-playing game where we got a sea battle done ever <laughs> because <laughs> i don't think i've finished one yet um and and i just thought oh this could be this if you just dropped this card game into a role-playing game box instead of the sea combat chapter you wouldn't be far off actually getting the game moving you know, all right, you've got to sort of zoom out from the action a little bit and you have a few pirate fleets and that kind of stuff. But the game was done in 10 minutes and uh, and we, we resolved a sea battle with winners, losers and everybody in between and pirate captains. And, and you could easily add in loads of role play flavor. But just from a mechanical viewpoint, some games get discrete activities very, very right. And they are subsystems. And I think that a lot of games... Yeah. Uh, more modern games like to have like a single engine that does everything. But I kind of miss the days of first edition D&D, which did have subsystems and mini games. And I, my understanding is that the One Ring does that a little bit too, with its little mini games within things. Um, and then the second one, uh, just quickly mentioned, is a game called Sushi Go, which is all about combining cards to make sushi dishes. Sounds absolutely ridiculous. But the genius mechanic on that one is that every single turn, you pass your cards to the player on your left your whole set of cards. So essentially, the cards revolve around the table like sushi dishes do in a restaurant. So mechanic, the, the, the combination of mechanic and flavor was perfect, but it also got you looking at the person on your left and at the person on your right. And again, I think a lot of role-playing playing games forget that sometimes the best stuff happens when you're talking to the player on your left and the player on your right and not having lots of individual one-on-one -on -one conversations with a GM. And, and I'd like to see something that was more more encouraging for players to talk to each other about and in character, which a simple little kid's card game managed within two minutes. Very clever. Yeah, I, I, I like the subsystems. I think the other the ship combat one I can think of is beta quarters, which we mentioned. But that it's because it uses the same cards to resolve something, but the, the way they work is different in ship combat, but it's got its own little different subsystem, but it does get you to a resolution fairly quickly, and, and that sort of thing, mm. like the one Ring you mentioned as well, sometimes yeah, you don't need to make the game work all the same way for everything, you just want something that works well for the thing you're trying to do, so there's you know there's, there's constant iterations of things like um, vehicle rules or whatever else, and they're frequently mm. pretty woeful, you can't do anything well, so you know, have a little system for that bit. If you can get it all to work together, that's great. But yeah, yeah it's there's, there's no harm play that. taking some mechanics from elsewhere. Yeah. Seriously, stuff like that. I, I, you must have thought this as well, guys. In some games, it's like, why don't we just stop playing that game for a minute, do this for the dogfight, and then go back to the role-playing game afterwards? Yeah. And yeah, you could probably hear the gears change a couple of times, but it wouldn't be that bad a plan, would it, really? No, well, I mean, there's stuff like Mech Warrior. Like, I love Battletech. Mm. And I like the idea of playing in that world, but what do you do? Because, you know, really the exciting bit is being in your mech do stuff. And the other stuff doesn't really come into, you know, what, what do you actually do? You really want to be inside your big atlas, firing your PPC at someone or something like that. So to be able to have a little game of Mech Warrior in between your role-playing game, and then that would affect the politics of the world, or then you do a bit of role-playing and get out and do something else or something. I don't know. I'd love to be able to um, kind of empower that kind of game. And I think, you know... There's definitely some space there for people to have a bit of a look and a play about and come up with something different. Hmm. Yeah, I've got. Uh, I kept dreaming again over Christmas of linking together some of the little board games and card games that I had into a day-long campaign. 
where you had a role-playing character or, or a set of them. And it would probably be something pulp and 20s because for some reason a lot of the games sort of felt that way. And you would go from a camel race around the pyramids to being on a train in the wild where shooting marshals uh, to eventually fighting off pirates in the, in the <laughs> Spanish main. It wouldn't take very much to link some of these games together. And, and the link could be the role-playing bit with some advancement and all the rest of it. And there's a campaign there. And sure, some of the, you know, there's lots of little rules changes you go along, but they're not hard to master. And they would be really cool, discrete little bits that you could have framed with loads of characterization, first of all, and maybe some meta mechanic over the top. I don't think you're far off having a really cool day at a convention if somebody could link together, say, four or five or half a dozen cool games to make it a narrative. Sounds like an interesting project. I look forward to playing that with you, Buzz. Well, and like I say, it'll end with chess because that's clearly where <laughs> my, my future takes me. <laughs> oh, dear. Cool. Well, we've hit the hour mark. Um, I think I'm about done for now. We, we could uh, we could talk again for another hour probably, but uh, let's keep it reasonable size. Have we got anything to finish off on, Baz? I think well, this one's been for, for two players and an infinite number of listeners for up to 60 minutes. So if that's what it said on the box, let's keep to that. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Welcome back to 2016 and more podcasts from the Smart Party. If you have any suggestions or ideas or things you want us to talk about, don't hesitate to let us know because we'll talk about our own stuff if you don't. And that's uh, so it's, it's really to your own benefit that you come up with things you want us to talk about. Or we'll ramble on as always because people seem to quite like it. So for now, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him. See you later. 